Talking Goldfish, Song and Dance Routines, and JFK. The Umbrella Academy shows the Marvel Cinematic Universe what it's been missing. As Flash Gordon turns 40, we celebrate a sci-fi classic and try really, really hard not to say, ha ha, every time somebody says Flash. Do we need another Tron film? Doesn't matter. It's happening. I'm Richard Edwards. I'm Dave Bradley. I'm Tanabu Patel. And there's all this, plus the Ninth Doctor, The Watch, and Star Trek Lower Decks, again, in Robbie the Robot's Waiting, the podcast that only has 14 hours to save the Earth. Hello! Hi! Hi everyone. Right, the most talked about sci-fi release of the last two weeks has undoubtedly been season two of The Umbrella Academy, Netflix's hit show about a family of dysfunctional superheroes. I think we've all watched it? Yep. Oh yeah, definitely. We're going to keep most of the chat spoiler-free, but we will be doing a spoilery section. We'll tell you where it begins and ends, so you can go and hide on the moon or something for a few minutes. Right, The Umbrella Academy. How do you think season two compared to season one? I thought it was great. I think um, a second season of a, of a superhero show, it doesn't have to do so much hard work, does it? Because it doesn't have to establish all the characters. We're right in at the start of this season with Boom and them arriving in the past. Uh, a lot of it's already set up. So so you can kind of get, you have to watch season one to know what's going on. But but once you're there, it, I, I thought it was off, off, to, a, off to a cracking start. Um, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this season. I think there's a few dropped balls i mean it's a great show in terms of its kind of visual style and its characters and what it does i i i, I sort of wanted them to make more of the kennedy assassination okay i think it was a really cool idea to sort of shift everything from the present day to the 1960s because it kind of made it feel a bit like a new show um and they got to do the end of the world again um this idea of the apocalypse but in a completely different setting so you know they were all out of their element in this in the 60s yeah, absolutely. And the, taking something back to the 60s means you get to play with a lot of things, including, you know, the civil rights movement and the Kennedy assassination, I guess, if you want to do that. Also, you know, it's it's a, a time period before um, the characters were were born, uh, 20 years before they were born. So so it, it kind of removes them from, you know, from from their familiar environment. Um uh, and it just it's, it makes for great um, great TV as well. The Umbrella Academy has always had a very kind of stylistic way about it. It's it's even when it was set in the present day, it was kind of a hyper real version of our world, wasn't it? It was kind of quirky and just going to the sixties as well. So it's all kind of a period piece. I think amplifies that. I love the the sixties theme. So they're back in you know they go back to nineteen sixty three, and I think that it does. It just fits it visually um, and stylistically the way that they are all sort of. Um, I don't think it's too much as well to say like they're not always obviously always together. So they're kind of finding themselves as well as each other, which is a fun thing to watch, especially because they are in an air, in a place where they're not used to. I preferred it this time. It's like, it's there's more of a thriller type feel than the dark theme. And it feels like there are definitely more together as a family rather than sort of necessarily fighting each other the selfishness is still there um but at the same time they're also helping others and they're finding out more about um about things it's funny because they kind of get over what happened to their real world quite sort of quickly it feels although i know that we don't see see all of what's happened to them like we sort of catch up just as a reminder um the moon destroyed the earth yes <laughs> yeah, crashed into the earth uh, caused, caused, caused by one of the umbrella academy yeah. um so so yeah uh, kind of a big deal i think that might also be the plot of season five of event uh, of agents of shield which i've been catching up on as well i Maybe. think it's the same and Ooh, they also mentioned that in flash gordon which we're going to talk about later one of the things that's quite joyful about season two as well is there's lots of kind of easter eggs in there and just lots of detail in the 
creation of that world as well and, and the characters. But I, I don't know whether you spotted this, but there's like a as they as they're back in the sixties, there's like a character with a the end is nigh placard on him, a little bit like a nod to the Watchmen, and and uh, and there's just lots of detail as they're kind of as each one of them arrives back in time because they arrive back in a, in a slightly different yeah. year. They're a little, a little bit separated. There's a different movie playing in the in the um, in the cinema across the street from where they are, um, and uh, one of them is Kiss of the Vampire, and then there's one a you know, werewolf one. So. And whether or not that's supposed to nod to something, I'm not sure, but it just feels like the world world is full of this kind of detail. It's a show that, since it's on Netflix and streaming, you can, I think, re-watch. I think it, play, it, it rewards watching every episode in kind of freeze-frame detail. Yeah, and it, you re- re-watching it rewards Netflix. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. true. And it's funny because I they film in Toronto, and um, I know I was there when they were filming the second season, and I can like seeing all the buildings that they use, but it does sort of hold up as Dallas really, really well at the same time. So it's, it's a strange sort of feeling to see it from like that sort of perspective. Yeah. I think they kind of fixed some of the issues with season one, mainly in terms of pacing. I think the showrunner Steve mm. Blackman has said that they made a concerted yeah. effort to cut 10 to 15 minutes off an episode. And I think yeah. you've kind of noticed that because I think there was definitely a problem with a bit of the so-called Netflix bloat in season one that, you know, <laughs> the season just felt a little bit too long. And I don't think that was a problem this time. I think it just really tripped along. You had know, sort of 45 minute episodes, which really sort of worked. I think last season, obviously they were, you know, establishing the characters and the, um, and the scenes. But what I liked about this is it felt very much more of a thriller in the sense that they're, you know, from the get go, you know, they're they're sort of thrust into this world and like trying to find each other. And then the whole way along, they're essentially trying to avoid, you know, something bad happening again, basically. And and I like the speed of that. And I think that that really helps that they had they'd sort of change the tone in a way to a sort of a 60s thriller, which was cool. I think tonally it was very clever because it goes all over the place in terms of tone, but all feels, you know, like one piece. So, you know, you've got funny bits, you've suddenly got them doing song and dance numbers, Mm. Uh, but then it's got some really quite politically hard hitting stuff about civil rights movement and, and, you know, what the world was like in the early sixties. It does all that, but does it in a way that feels all like it's meant to be together. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's almost all the different facets of the, of the 1960s, isn't it? It's totally. the, it's the kind the of, exactly, exactly that kind of hippie cult thing, but also reflecting the fact that the 60s is, you know, is is a time where there's an incredible amount of bigotry and prejudice against the black citizens of, uh, of Dallas. And meanwhile, there's also the kind of uh, conspiracy nut, because of course there's, you know, obsession with the uh, sort of aliens and, and, uh, and, and that. So, um, and, and the cold war paranoia as well. The fact that one of the characters is called Vanya is, you know, is, is, you know, remarked upon and, and, and motivates some of the characters. So, um, so yeah, very, very interesting. and very looking at the kind of the different, um, ways in which the 1960s was kind of perceived at the time and the lived experience of that through the different characters who were there and their, their experiences. There were some great new characters as well, I thought. Like, there's a talking goldfish who wasn't <laughs> in it nearly enough, I reckon. But Carmichael, the boss of the uh, Temps Commission. That, I was like, what, what's happening now? Because <laughs> it was a trippy thing anyway. And then, then we see this talking goldfish. And I'm like, yeah, now, now it definitely feels like someone's taking drugs. <laughs> but not just, a, not just a talking goldfish. A talking goldfish in a bowl on top of a man suit. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> I should say, actually, that we're kind of spoilt for uh show superhero shows that that push the kind of inventiveness to the limit because there's also doom patrol out at the moment which also has a number of kind of wild characters in it and i think they probably win because i think one of their 
one of their characters is a is a street if i'm not much mistaken so you <laughs> might want to go back and watch doom patrol but um but yeah so we're kind of spoiled if, if kind of slightly surreal takes on uh, on on powers is your thing i thought the swedes were actually a great assassin trio like the nihilists in the big lebowski mm. it took me half the se- half the season to figure out that the main swede was chris holden reed from lost girl i was just looking at, i couldn't help just look at him going i know that guy but he looks so different <laughs> so so freak. different yeah yeah the, the commission is is a uh is kind of a wonderfully um kind of baroque uh, slightly kind of out of time institution it reminds me of everything from brazil to the um the universe of the john wick films if i'm honest that kind of slightly you know slightly slightly fantastical take on the you know on on that um kafkaesque kind of uh, uh, red tape type thing they, the, the reason why they, you may remember that in John Wick, they explain that the universe is like that and it's all pneumatic tubes and, and, uh, and valve machinery is so that it can't be hacked. And, uh, but I don't think there's anything as, as kind of rational about that as about Umbrella Academy. I think the Umbrella Academy commission is just because it looks awfully cool and stylish. I think there's a, a little bit of uh, kind of valve punk about it. We're going to venture into spoiler territory now. So if you don't want to know what happens at the end of season two, jump forward to time code 14 minutes and 46 seconds. It's like time travel. First of all, Sir Reginald Hargreaves, the uh, founder of the Umbrella Academy, he pulls off his face and it turns out he's an alien. Yeah. You saw that coming. <laughs> so I thought he was from season one because of the way that he enters, uh, it was like the 1800s, whatever. So I knew he was some sort of alien. I just didn't expect him to have a weird head. <laughs> I, he looked like a like Star a Wars character, right? That's it. He looks yeah. like someone from the cantina. Absolutely, that's exactly it. That that was the bit that freaked me out more. As well as they uh, these appearance, they play with time as well, don't they? There's obviously some implication that he's doing something on the dark side of the moon, and then since we're in the spoiler zone here, uh, when we get to the final episode, he's still alive in the present day, um, which uh, and changes the nature of the academy. So there's something weird going on about him and and how he. Well, I, I think I think it's fairly safe to assume it's a different timeline, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. You know, so so they arrive, they think they're back home at the mansion, and their father kind of recognizes them uh, but doesn't seem that happy to see them and then introduces the sparrow academy who are a pretty much all different group of uh superpowered people but he never seems happy to see them so okay so it's not that alternative a timeline but i'll tell you what though i was really pleased although we don't know how it's going to play out but i um I tell you what, I was really pleased to see uh, Ben back in the Sparrow Academy at the end because I thought he was great. And then, of course, oh, we're in the spoiler zone, so we can say he sacrifices himself. And I, and I, I remember just thinking, oh, that's disappointing because he was great. I really liked having him as one of the siblings. But now he's the leader of yeah. the Umbrella Academy. He is number one. And he's not. he doesn't seem to know or like his siblings. He's, what does he say? Who are these assholes? <laughs> he's very unBen-like. I'm going to miss that romance as well, like the Ben-Klaus riff. Um, yeah, you know good. Ben sort of keeping him on the straight and narrow and Klaus clearly losing yeah. it I'm, that is a I'm great way to look at it Klaus but I really I miss that that sort of uh, camaraderie that they had um, as well so it's going to be a shame it's going to be a very different Ben Klaus uh, uh, relationship isn't it I've just you, what you've just said there just makes me think of their relationship in a, in a way that I haven't kind of articulated before but he's kind of like he's Jiminy Cricket isn't he 
Like Ben is sort of there as like this invisible thing keeping him on the straight and narrow. Like you said, that's interesting. He's kind of like his conscience floating around. So the Sparrow Academy, we, we recognise Ben, but we don't re- properly see the other people. They're very carefully silhouetted so that they can do the casting later. But there is a floating green cube. There's uh, well, there's forty three superpowered children, don't we? We know that from the yeah. episode introduction and the intro. So one of one of the forty three, I suppose. Well, we know that um, Lila is one of them, so that's eight yeah. with the original seven and then ben's obviously in both so i think that makes 14 altogether so there's presumably another 29 out there somewhere oh harlan but no he was artificially made one of them wasn't he? he's not a, one of the well, I, i'd be very surprised if harlan the, the sort of kid who became superpowered in the 60s doesn't come back so what he'd be a 60 something now he'll be in it i have a feeling yeah yeah, yeah. Well, it feels like a universe that's really being set up for event you know to sort of get bigger god it would be cruel if netflix didn't renew it for a third season wouldn't it yeah Lila's probably the most important new character in the show. What do you think of her? I never really bought that she really liked Diego and it, was, it seemed to me it was fairly obvious that she was definitely um, on the other side, should I say. And, um, but at the same time, she was interesting. Like Their interaction was fun and it, was, mm. it definitely had a different feel to you know, the interactions that we've seen um, for a lot of the others. So I, I, I agree. You know, I need to go back and watch it again because I've got a feeling that were there hints. Uh, what took me by surprise was the fact that she had powers. That that was that that took my breath yes. away. But now I want to go back and watch it again because did she just play any of those earlier on? Because she was quite badass when she when they broke out of the mental asylum and so on. And I want to I want to go back and kind of. But she can only have powers when they're fighting against her. She only knew it was there of Okay, that's interesting. I want to, well, yeah, okay, fine, good. Netflix has since announced that there are actually 43 sparrows hidden throughout the season. Did you spot any? Uh, are you tempted to go back and look for them? I am tempted to go back. I spotted one at the time. It's really obvious. The, the the boy Highland does have a toy sparrow. That was a, that was kind of really obvious. That that was kind of front and center. I think because he's playing with it. You know, when when he demonstrates that he's got the power to um, to manipulate energy, he, he he levitates this kind of toy, and that was a sparrow, and that that kind of stuck in my mind. But I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you where the other forty three are. I'm gonna have to go back and watch Ooh, them. What, I thought there was almost more because there's that. I like the way that each episode opens with its own sort of visual plaque, really, of the umbrella. Yeah. you know depending how to do it and one of the um, it's brilliant it's brilliant one of the umbrellas isn't it there's a flock of birds and then they uh, kind of congregate into an umbrella and then they fly off again that's interesting wouldn't it be cruel if they're starlings <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, oh, that's interesting i'll have to go back and watch that yeah def- definitely uh definitely is praying for a for a rewatch absolutely just the level of detail you know in fact even if it wasn't for these easter eggs i'd still want to go and rewatch it again it's just such a sumptuous really well-made show with just kind of the, the sets and the characters and the costumes and things. I think it looks amazing. See, Netflix is all about the rewatch. They want those <laughs> figures. Okay, we're going to go back to the comparative safety of non-spoiler zone now. Um, so anything else that's been uh, on your radar over the last couple of weeks? So I had, um, in my usual <laughs> Wednesday night thing of channel flicking, discovered BBC's Ghosts, which was the... 2019 sort of sitcom um, made by the Horrible Histories crew and it was really it was a really nice little um, series that I then sort of went back and watched on iPlayer and so it's about this couple Alice and Mike who suddenly inherit this really old um, dilapidated huge mansion button house um, and through various things um, Alison finds that she can see the ghosts of the house um, and they all just have to realise that they have to live together and it's quite funny um but in a and the characters are great and uh there's always this kind of 
sort of tongue-in-cheek humor going on for the whole thing but it's it was a nice easy watch i liked it sounds a bit like beetlejuice that was one of the um inspirations for it there's kind of a whiff of rent a ghost about it as well and uh, <laughs> uh, for those for those of a certain age and, and, and but it's just just kind of gently funny and but and also actually a little bit creepy i mean horrible histories is fantastic this is one advantage of having an eight-year-old you watch a lot of horrible mm-hmm. histories like, <laughs> you hear something like this is really good i'd like to Bring a, bring a book to the group, if I may. I have been reading, and I'm almost at the end of, The Pursuit of William Abbey, which is the book, uh, the latest book by Claire North. And um, I'm almost at the end, very much enjoying it. And um, that's been what I've been doing with some of my spare time uh, this month. And I, I love Claire North's books. Now, Claire North is also Kate Griffin, who is also Catherine Webb. Uh, so she's an author, a uh, prolific author, written in many genres. And, and if you're... Uh, the kind of reader who enjoys books like um, uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere and the Ben Aronovich's uh, stories about London and Paul Cornell's Shadow Police and so on. She writes as Kate Griffin in that kind of genre, that kind of uh, hidden London, fantasy fantasy London kind of genre. And they're great too. But as Claire North, she writes these kind of thrillers, very, very high concept thrillers, where a person discovers that they've got perhaps a superpower. So, you know, not a million miles away from some of the superhero stuff we've been talking about. But uh, in the the, the first book that she wrote, Harry August, it's about a a person who discovers that they're one of a, 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 a group of people who live their life over and over again so that when they die they're reborn as, as a child back in time and, and they discover that they can send messages up and down the timeline and, and they, they live their lives over and over again and there's a number of books like this and, and they're, they're all um they're, they're they're all great they're they're very much worth a read and uh the pursuit of william abbey which is what i'm reading at the moment is a, about a guy who um uh, discovers that he can can is like a human lie detector he can tell the truth he's kind of followed by a shadow uh, a curse is laid upon him and he's followed by the shadow of a dead child it's really it's quite dark uh, everywhere and as the shadow gets closer to him he can tell any truth around him he can tell what people are thinking so of course he gets recruited into the um into the secret service and 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 he becomes an agent of the british empire because it's set in the 19th century so it's got a kind of great setup and um but as with their other books too, it's it's got a subtext as well, and it's actually about the kind of horrors that that there are, are at the um, the sort of the terrible truths that are at the heart of uh, of empire. So it's, it's it's great. So it's it's got she's an incredible stylist as well. It's very well written. It's great high concept for those who like a good a good science fiction fantasy kind of story, and it's got um it, it's got some you know a real kind of uh, message in there as well. So yes, Claire North, the pursuit of William Abbey. That's where I've been going when I've not been watching Netflix. Now, we've been talking about Star Trek Lower Decks for the last few weeks, and uh, I've actually finally seen it. Um, and Great, how was I, it? Yeah, I kind of enjoyed it, but with caveats. I mean, it's full of Star Trek references, um, certainly to the next generation era, but it's kind of quite lowbrow. Um, you can see the Rick and Morty influence on it, but it's not as clever as either Star Trek or Rick and Morty. Um, and the biggest crime about it is it's not that funny. You know, you, it's kind of raises a smile, but I didn't really have that many belly laughs. Um, and it, you kind of have this weird idea of what the Venn diagram is for a fan of this show, you know, cause you've got to be a Star Trek fan to like it. But I think a lot of Star Trek fans will want something a little bit cleverer. Um, so be interesting to see what kind of audience, uh, it finds. And I've got to mention something. Uh, I saw yesterday, the first episode of a red dwarf documentary, the first three million years, looking back at the history of the show. Um, wow. you know, this is great. You know, Red Dwarf deserves this treatment, you know, and it's a three episode thing narrated by David Tennant and it's got like archive footage. You know, you, you get to see a bit where the uh, Robert Llewellyn does Crichton for the first time 
uh, in rehearsals and he's posh you know like <laughs> Crichton was in season two uh you know you find out things like Alan Rickman being up for the role of Lister you know this is great it's a good story um I'm really lo- looking forward to watching the other two episodes uh it's on Dave and UK TV play so you can catch up as you want but that's enough on that we'll be back in a sec to talk Flash Gordon Okay, welcome to part two, and welcome to Lisa Downs, uh, director of Life After Flash, a documentary Hello. about Flash Gordon. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. So, uh, what what have you been enjoying in sort of sci-fi worlds over the last that few weeks? That is a good question. You know what? For me, with the, the sci-fi fantasy element, it's more what I'm waiting for. Um, I'm really excited about what we do in the shadows coming back. I yeah. thought that was really yeah. brilliant and refreshing, and just I found it really hard to find a good comedic program even whatever other genre it might have so i'm really excited about what we do in the shadows and i had all these grand plans during lockdown to be catching up on all the shows that i wanted to watch but as we all know you know no one's learned five languages and done a cookbook and so for me the the thing that's on my list is and i should have watched it by now the dark crystal age of resistance i i was see i was nervous to start watching it when it first came out because I'm such a fan of the original. Flash Gordon. I always think it's kind of a weird movie. It's released the same year as The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, uh, and they couldn't be more different. Okay, aside from the fact they're both space opera, it's just weird, right? One is definitely distinctive. brilliant, in my opinion. <laughs> Not that I'm biased. <laughs> Certainly, uh, you know, Flash Gordon has a distinctive look that I, I, I think comes from... Uh, just so many things coming together at the same time, you know, uh, the, uh, the production design of, uh, of Delati and so on. And the, and, 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 uh, and, and the, the, the choice of actors and, and, and so on. There's no way that you could make that story, um, and not be tongue in cheek about it. Right. I think you say, in, you mentioned in your documentary, Lisa, um, when you're speaking to, um, uh, to, to the, to cast and crew and they, they, they say, you know, Zarkov, builds a spaceship in his greenhouse to, to go and save the world. It's sort of ridiculous. So it's, it's a story that has to be told a certain way, doesn't it? I think you just have to take the whole thing with a grain of salt, don't you? I mean, if you start to nitpick about something that Dr. Zarkov does, um, <laughs> I think you're maybe missing the rest of the film. You know, I, I used to get hung up on the fact that um, Dale fell in love so quickly and they were engaged after about 20 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) So, but, but I love the idea that this film just was its own of the time, you know, everyone was trying to be the next thing and, and, but Flash was just, just so left field and so brilliant that I, a lot of people just didn't know what hit them when they saw it in the cinemas. And that's what sticks with them. You know, I guess for people, Star Wars fans, it's that the impact of the music and, you know, but with Flash, it was like the colours and the music and the costumes. And I mean, just so many elements came together in a way that they shouldn't have to make this brilliant, epic film that we're still celebrating 40 years later. We had that weird genesis, didn't it? Because George Lucas wanted to make Flash Gordon and Dino De Laurentiis, the producer, had the rights and didn't sell them to George Lucas. So George Lucas thought, all right, I'll go and make Star Wars. And then after Star Wars, Dino De Laurentiis thought, I've got the rights to Flash Gordon. I'm going to make Flash Gordon. And 
very much did it his exactly, own way. Exactly, exactly. But what's interesting, going back to George Lucas doing it, he was so influenced by it. You from the the Buster Crab serial, he took that iconic text crawl from the original series, and he took Princess Leia's mm. buns hairstyle from the original series, and um, you know, and I I think I think Flash Gordon has just inspired, well, the original series inspired so many people, but also the Italian background and that European background. To him, it was probably just normal. You know, he was a producer that was big and bold and and wanted to make something that was serious and didn't understand why people were laughing (laughs) and at all, you know, the campiness, as they say. And it just, it just all accidentally worked, I think. I didn't realise, um, up until I saw your documentary that Nicholas Rogue had had a shot at developing it before. Uh, what a different film that would have been. I know. And I tried to get an interview with him, but I didn't manage that. But you can actually find some of the original sketches online if you search them of the concept art. Vastly different. Um, one of the, I think it was the first, the second AD, Michael Stevenson had said that um, I don't think I included this in the film, that if Nick Rode had done it, it was going to be much more dark and it wouldn't have been the same film. He didn't think it would have been anywhere near as great if Nicholas Rogue had, and I hope I hope that's right, Michael, if you're listening to this, um, but it wouldn't have been anywhere near as great if, if Nicholas Rode had kept going the way he was. It was eye-catching in many ways. And and it did, it, this dialogue was fairly simple, but it works for it. You concentrated on everything else that's going on. And even the battle scenes watching it now it's so much fun and that's what to me watching it first in the 80s and then now I remember it actually being scary I remember like you know the stump the tree monster. thing putting your hand in the stump oh, yeah the wood monster stump monster whatever you call it like that that definitely is what stayed with a lot of us but then watching it again I really enjoyed it in a different way because it wasn't scary it was just this fanfare really and it was stunning it was like something you if you almost felt like you're watching theater really yeah and um so I felt very different about it watching the second watching it the second time around as an adult but still loved it and it and it holds up really well it doesn't feel like it's aged much at all it really benefited from having that British um obviously I'm biased being British but having that British kind of breath of fresh air because you know the Italians did it their way with the costumes and and the design of it all, but to have someone like Mike Hodges directing it and the the little the 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 the, the language that he added to it, you know, the kind of British humour element with the the Houdini line was Mike Hodges' input, and I just mm-hmm. those were the things for me that I loved. This blend of yes, it's this kind of like campy Italian production, but with the coolness of the British humour that we love so much and I think resonates as well. I think that really added to its success, the longevity of its success. It's, it's so quotable, isn't it? That, that script right from, you know, Clyde to sign board all the way through every scene has something in it that, that, that people quote back to each other as fans. It's, you know, as, and as, uh, uh, as everyone quotes back, Gordon's alive, Brian blessed, <laughs> uh, steals every scene and has a, has somehow managed to turn two words into a, in, into a 40 year catchphrase. The, the story <laughs> So when I was interviewing, it's very surreal. When I was interviewing Brian May, um, it's something that I don't think I'll ever say again, but he told me that he lives near Brian Blessed in Surrey. And 
with no one around. There's, they kind of live in a valley, I think. And even if he just is out having a coffee in the morning, Brian Blessed will yell, Gordon's alive for no reason from his <laughs> to all the neighbours just to start the day. And he said he'd be sitting there in the garden and he'll hear, Gordon's alive, <laughs> like bellowing across the valley. And I just thought it's the most brilliant story I've ever heard. And so oh, you can just see it, can't you? Yeah, amazing. I want to know where this is and sorry now. I'm going to go search it. <laughs> just, just stand there and you'll hear it and yeah. follow like Marco Polo. <laughs> The cast is actually one of the genius things about the film because you, you've got um, Sam Jones as Flash and Melody Anderson as Dale and they play it totally straight. You know, they're, they're not joking at all. But then you've got this bunch of sort of character actors like you know Max von Sydow as, as Ming the Merciless and then Brian Blessed as Volton and Timothy Dalton as Baron. And they're really going for it. You know, they, they've got brilliant lines to say uh and they they, they just relish yeah. being in the movie i think they have to though i think they all realized on set that you know people were enjoying the the uh the rushes at the end of the day you know watching dailies and and that classic story of dino saying why are they laughing because they they could see the humor in it and because of that they all played it straight and it was the only way it, it could be done um yeah. I, I think maybe timothy dalton was desperate for it to, to be kind of more serious than it was but you know I it just it totally worked playing it straight and and Dale Melody Anderson actually wasn't the first choice for Dale they had actually cast another actress to the point that she was on set and then just didn't work out and they called Melody up and literally she said that night she had to fly over and she started on the film the next day and so for her to come in at such a late stage and still be able to have that chemistry on such a really fast moving schedule I think um shows shows just the incredible talent of, of the cast especially when a lot of them it was their first films you know there was a lot on their shoulders it was a huge budget um and I think that it was just amazing what they achieved and Mike Hodges too being thrown in with a couple of weeks notice you know it wasn't wasn't the, the best start to a film but they all pulled it off also you, you can't really talk about flash gordon without talking about the music because you know that in 1980 blockbusters were scored completely classically and you've got these huge sort of epic bits of queen in there and it, you know the battle sequences at the end where you've got queen playing just yeah they're yeah, amazing yeah. as it says in in your documentary you know when you see brian may playing that that tune it's got that heartbeat to the film and as soon as he just strikes those notes that boom 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 you're there aren't you it's just a what, what a what a soundscape totally and just every time you talk to someone about it it's like, ah everyone does it <laughs> you know, they just they just can't help it and um it, it was an incredible score and it's what I think people remember the most when you're, you know, eight years old, seeing it with your dad in the cinema and the music just comes on um, and it still gives you goosebumps. You know, it's, it's the queen, I think have a, a just a, a tendency to, to do that. Don't they, you know, you'll, you can't hear Bohemian Rhapsody without thinking of Wayne's world and, you know, they just bring and Highlander score as well. Yeah. And Islander, they just, they just bring any time, even if they score a film or their song is used, they just completely change the tone of a film. But of course, Howard Blake did the orchestral part of the score, which, you know, hats off to him doing it in 10 days and nearly dying. Um, he, he had, 
he had a huge part of it. So he did, he showed me all the original score, like huge sheets of paper, did the whole orchestra and just pages and pages and pages. And then, and then Queen took that and, and put their stamp on, they put their stamp on it, but then they also gave themselves different sections that they really wanted to work on. It almost feels like it was a mishmash of parts that just somehow came together, which often I guess a film can be. But this one really was like you know, last-minute casting, last-minute director change, and changing things really on the fly. And yet somehow they've made this amazing masterpiece because they've all kind of pitched in in a way just to go, let's change this bit, that bit, and let's do it. I think they're as surprised as you are. <laughs> <to be fair. laughs> but you wouldn't expect it to be, right? A lot of it was improvised. You know, Sam and Melody have told the story many times of the, the football fight being improvised. You know, what would Sam do or what would Flash do? He's a footballer and she's an all-American cheerleader. So it just, it just, it shouldn't, so many reasons why it shouldn't have worked. If you kind of pitched it now, people would just think, yeah. they would just think you're crazy but I think people love it because of all these um these these elements that shouldn't have worked and slightly failed and are a bit over the top and it's just it's the most glorious mishmash of of production I think a film has ever seen how did you end up making a documentary about Sam Jones and Flash Gordon I had been working for other production companies for the few years prior and I was waiting for a story or an opportunity to, to really action that dream that I wanted to do. And we live in kind of a, a technological world at the moment where it's so easy to be creating your own projects that I was, I wanted to take advantage of that. And a friend of mine had worked with Sam on The Jump, that show with ski jumps. I mean, oh, that crazy thing where they ridiculous. Like, How they. Isn't it the thing where no How? one. Didn't anybody yes, get and injured? Sam did. I don't know how they get insured, but <laughs> Sam was due to be on one of the series and he hurt his shoulder. So he never actually got to be on air. He ended up in hospital with a, a injured shoulder and a friend of mine was producing the wow. show and we were at a birthday party and she was telling me about what she was working on and how she kind of bonded with Sam because it was her job to keep making sure he was fine. He was, he is. Um, and I just, she told me and I fangirled and I just was so excited. The idea that she had known flash cause I, he, him and Melody were at a comic con a couple of years earlier and I kicked myself for missing it. I remember seeing the ad and getting so excited and then realizing it was like a month prior. So when she told me, I just thought, I wonder what had happened to him. I'd seen flash, loved flash, grew up with flash, seen him and Ted didn't know what had happened from A to B. You could see on his IMDb he had hundreds of TV shows. So I just said to her that would be a great documentary. She said, why don't you put it together in a pitch and I'll send it to his then agent. So I did and she did. And then I ended up Skyping Sam and it was very surreal um, pitching it to him and and not just pitching the show but pitching the idea of crowdfunding and, and that whole side of it, which is quite a scary concept in itself. And that was October 2014 and 2015 in January. I was out in Texas eating peach cobbler at a steakhouse with him and filming him. And it was <laughs> just kind of snowballed from there. So, so I guess, I mean, Sam Jones, you know, he, he was the star of Flash Gordon, which was this sort of big blockbuster at the time. But then his career didn't quite, you know, he didn't kind of become this sort of big sort of Hollywood star. He kind of didn't go as you might have thought after that. Did that kind of make it 
sort of more tricky to do the interviews and sort of ask him about his career and, and sort of how things have gone yes since? Yes and no, because at the beginning I didn't know what happened to him because I couldn't find out on the internet. Um, and even when you read things on the internet, you never know if they're 100% true. But I really didn't see anything about his personal life or what he went through. You know, you read people's opinions about maybe what happened, but when you can't really see what happened, but you see he has actually done so much work, you just think how how can he have been this really amazing in this amazing film and this up and coming star, and then it just not happen for him. Um, so when we first met him in it was in Laredo in Texas at a, a comic con. We started an interview there that was very top level, like how did you get the role? What was it like working with the other cast members? You know, the, the, the production side of it. And then once we got to know each other, I made sure that every interview, we did five or six interviews in total, every interview I would dig a little deeper with the personal questions, see how he reacted to them. Um, but after about the third interview, he just said, you know what, I'm honesty is the biggest thing as long as, I tell the truth as long as all my friends and family tell the truth. I don't mind what is said. He told that to his friends when he set up all he, this is the military in him. I, I arrived and he had three days of call sheets for me and interviews set up. It's like, right, you're going to be <laughs> yeah. there at 10 o'clock. Then you're going to go here at 11 o'clock and it's 40 minutes drive. So, and he had coordinated the whole thing with his family and friends. He set up a barbecue um, where all his family went. You'll see where he does the rope climb. That was his barbecue. And he just said to them, just tell the truth and I don't care what you say about me or my story. And it was through the friends that I found out all the, the interesting parts of his story. And then I went back to Sam and I said, look, this is what's been said. These are the things I want to talk to you about. And it was the very last interview that he then really opened up about it all. Uh, so it was, it was quite a process, you know, at the beginning when you don't know what the story is, you don't know what the documentary is going to be like. Is it, is it going to be interesting, you know? And so there were all these kind of thoughts going around, but obviously it turned out well. Um, and I was just very, very lucky that he was such an open and honest person. Um, I mean, Sam's obviously the, the centre of the movie, but you also kind of, it, it spreads out and becomes this sort of documentary about Flash Gordon as a whole, and you've got fans in there, but also a load of the cast. At what point did you think, actually this story is much bigger and I really want to talk it, it about it really did start off a film about Sam's life but because the crux of his story is really what happened on set and you you can't really talk about his story without talking about Flash Gordon obviously that's why I wanted to do a film about him uh, but the the snowball effect of what happened in his life really stemmed from that experience and so when you want to do the story about what happened to him on set and how he behaved you think well it'd be great to get melody's point of view was he really like that to the cast or was it just to dino it'd be great to have brian bless's point of view and then as a very big fan of flash gordon myself the idea of meeting all of these people it was you know it excited me and so it grew into this well why don't we do it a celebration of the film as well as talking to all these people about Sam and his experience. And then it just, then I had Alex Ross's poster on my wall and I would sit there every night and I would kind of mentally tick off who I still need to interview. And it became this kind of obsession of wanting to make sure that I 
as a fan myself, I celebrated it as much as possible and had as many of the cast and crew that I could, knowing that if I was watching this as a fan, that's what I would want to see. So, uh, yeah, I definitely went to great lengths to try and get everyone involved. <laughs> One of the things I was curious to ask you is this. So I think I interviewed Sunday James back in 2017 and it was uh, at MCM Comic Con, but we were doing like a, a live stream stage and I just remember straight away how charismatic he was and he knew your name and he was trying to make sure that your camera angles were right for everybody so everybody not that that I think they was Bane but more because he wanted the fans to make sure that they could see what they wanted to see and then he was like our mic stopped working as they do and he was you know trying to sort it out and, and he was reenacting like a scene at one point and it was amazing just watching him go and all that energy but then the whole thing kind of got overridden and obscured by the fact that um, later on in the in the Comic Con, I think he went and to have like a fake fight, like a posed fight with Lou Ferrigno, who played the Hulk back in the seventies. And the next thing we know, <laughs> that's all in the Daily Mail the next day, and it's all about they had a real fight. And I wondered, you know, he just he comes across as such a lovely guy, but a lot of what you see and then what you hear is that actually he's quite a potentially difficult and so I wondered what you thought about that and how true that might be because certainly through the your amazing um documentary you kind of get that feeling that they definitely was difficult at times I can't believe you were there when that fight happened that's brilliant yeah. I remember seeing that <laughs> I was yeah. like, how what are you doing um it's, it's a really interesting question because by all accounts, what you see in the film, in the documentary, is how I experienced Sam. He genuinely will go out of his way. And like his son says, he will stay until, you know, the the dinner is shut or the event is closed and he will go out of his way to meet every single person that's taken the time. And that isn't his involvement in the film trying to make him come across a certain way. He didn't have that um he you know he saw a cut of it but he didn't have that say in in how I edited the film and he was completely genuine like how you see him is how he was I do know that part of his journey is that self-realization that it's not about him so I think if people had met him a few years earlier if I had tried to do the documentary a few years earlier it would have been a completely different documentary so there Mm. may be stories from the old Sam that people are still bringing into now because I, I know that he, however he is now is exactly just exactly how you described him. He will go totally out of his way. You know, if, if I called him now and said, I need you to come here tomorrow and help me with painting, he would be on a plane straight away. You know, he's like that kind of person. So I do hope that if anyone did have a a bad experience for, for lack of a better word, um, maybe a few years ago that they do meet him now because he is he is like Flash Gordon, you know. He is. It's amazing how much he is now. He so is. Many and years later. As soon as he walks yeah. into a room, you can just feel him, and he's like tall and so like, <laughs> so in shape, and he can still do rope climbs, and it's just yeah, he really is the the embodiment of of what you would hope him to be. So Life After Flash isn't the end of your sort of uh, odyssey of uh, 80s movies. So can you tell like us a bit about your odyssey. new projects? I think I'm going to use that. Um, no, of course. So so Life After 
is going to be a series. It is a series of feature documentaries. I'm very nostalgic. I love my childhood. I love 80s films. Um, so it's celebrating these classics that I grew up on. Um, so the next film, which we are in post-production on, um, and we hope to get it out in November, is Life After the Navigator, which celebrates Randall Kleiser's amazing classic, Flight of the Navigator, um, and it looks at the life of Joey Kramer, who played David Freeman. And and if anyone Googles him or has Googled him, you can see that he hasn't had the the best life. Um, it's been a roller coaster life, and so we really explore that story in this documentary. So are you following a similar sort of pattern with this, that you're going beyond Joe and actually looking at other best aspects of the movie? Because I mean, this was a big Disney movie at it the was, time, wasn't it? It was. So yes, indeed. So the Life Afters will follow that same vein of celebrating the films as well as looking at the, the star from them. And so um, Randall Kleiser, who directed Grease and Blue Lagoon and Wai Fang and just to, to have him involved has been amazing. He is uh, on board as the executive producer of the documentary. Um, hugely helpful. I can't believe that my name is on the same film as him. Um, <laughs> he was, yeah, I know, like pinch myself. Um, he was really great. So we started filming this in 2018, beginning of 2018, only a couple of months after Joe had come out of prison. Um, he and I were actually pen pals for about six months when I had tracked him down. We we wrote to each other while he was still inside. And then when he got out, we started filming him in Canada. And then, again, same vein, we interviewed Randall about not only Joe but the film. And then Randall helped set up a, a reunion day, which um, we had uh, Cliff DeYoung, who played Joe's – well, David's dad, Veronica Cartwright, obviously from Alien um, – who played David's mum and then Matt Adler, who was the brother, and Albie Whitaker, who was little Jeff. And, um, you know, we had a couple of the producers there and the puppeteers and Jeff Kleiser, who, you know, Tron uh, special effects. And so just, again, like to have all these people sharing their stories about their time on set and then why the film is so special all these years later. And they also weigh in on Joe's story as well. So it is, you know, a proper, again, as a fan, this is what I would, want to see it's been a really interesting ride and yeah i hope to have it out in november and you're also making that a movie the about the never-ending story so the third in the series is life after a treyu um that follows noah hathaway who played a treyu uh that we started filming that in march at liverpool comic-con where uh, tammy stronach was there as well uh, who was a childlike empress and we did a bit of filming there we filmed lamal we went to germany to film klaus doldinger um, I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, he did a little, you know, uh, saxophone esque clip of his his music, which is incredible. Um, and then COVID hit, so we had a trip booked to go and film Wolfgang Peterson and Deep Roy, and uh, so that was uh, put on hold. But as soon as Corona is over and the the lockdown stops, we can uh, get back to work. So that hopefully will be out next year, and then the life after will be. A continuing series. We'll say that's the end for Flash Gordon, or maybe we should put a question mark at the end uh, in true Flash Gordon style. And we'll be back in a moment with our news roundup. Welcome to part three, our news roundup. Our next episode will be out on Thursday, the 27th of August, when we'll be rereading June ahead of Denis Villeneuve's new movie. 
Might also talk about Sting's weird pants from the David Lynch movie, but let's see how that one goes. If you have anything you'd like to say about Dune, or if you want to get in touch about anything else sci-fi related, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at RobbieSciFi. And please remember to subscribe on Apple or whatever you get your podcasts. And you can even give us a rating and say nice things about us. That'd be ace. Okay, so news roundup. First of all, Star Trek. Noah Hawley, uh, the man behind the Fargo TV show and Legion, uh, is not making a Star Trek movie anymore, it seems. Uh, He was attached to make a a new film, but it's not happening. Um, Not sure why, but it was going to have a pandemic in it, so that might have something to do with it. (laughs) Bit of a shame that he's not making a movie, though, right? I mean, because he is one of the best TV writers around, so it was quite intrigued to see what he did with Star Trek. I'm curious if the reason why if they'll throw COVID at it as the reason or if you know there's some internal problems involved Mm. that could be on your next podcast you can do some digging do some digging (laughs) yeah I assume COVID had had a lot to do with it but um I think you may for me you kind of put your finger on it there Richard there's loads going on on TV with Star Trek at the moment I mean I'm still excited about Strange New Worlds I'm I can't wait to see the the um Pike series um that uh, that's in development I think that that's that's where my Star Trek hopes are pinned and there are also two more movies still in development so there's a Tarantino one what that was left Tarantino (laughs) yeah uh, I mean, it's going to have 30s gangsters in it as well, apparently, if it happens. So, yeah, that's a weird one. And also one that's sort of more in the, the existing movie universe with uh, Chris Pine as Kirk and uh, Chris Hemsworth back as his dad, George, who we saw in the first J.J. Abrams movie. Though the problem there might be that the two actors are very hard to schedule and very, very expensive. Yeah, but it's worth it. I would watch anything with those two in. Yeah, me too. It'd be brilliant. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? Because Chris Hemsworth was what in about eight minutes of the first one. But so, they're yeah. a great eight minutes. They are great. They're exactly. arguably one of the best bits of the film. Just a brilliant scene. In other long-running sci-fi uh, series news, uh, Christopher Eccleston is back as the Doctor for the first time in fifteen years in wow. the, um, some new Doctor Who audio adventures. Um, that's actually pretty exciting because he's kind of the Doctor who got away. All the other Doctors have recorded loads of sort of uh, audio dramas and sort of never really left the role, but. He, he kind of left it behind when he left the show. Yeah, and he was only on it for you know for a very short amount of time. But he's back fifteen years later, and he seems to have softened towards Doctor Who generally. You know, more ready to talk about it and, and so on. I, certainly, the fans are excited. Do- Doctor Who Twitter went wild uh, with the uh, with the announcement that he'd be doing the audio dramas, which is uh, fantastic. But then you wonder why, after fifteen years, that he suddenly is he just in a blip? Like, is he just kind of got now's the time, or is it just like? You know, we are in a time of nostalgia. Maybe he's just yeah, kind of jumping on the the wagon. Or maybe it's like he can't film anything right now. So and and also, I think right. I was going to say, I was going to say, audio dramas are a great a great place for uh, for for people in the film industry who who can't uh, who can't record uh, live action stuff right now. And because everyone keeps pushing nostalgia buttons, there is apparently going to be a Tron three um, ten years after Tron two uh, with Jared Leto in it. Uh, mm. He put out a tweet that said it might be called Tron Ares, and then it was kind of deleted very soon afterwards. Tron. It's a it's a visually memorable movie. Uh, it's got a cool idea, but is it worth going back to? Really, I mean, I don't think so. For me, I think Tron. What made it so special was because it was visually incredible for the time. So then, right. when you're bringing it back, especially if there's not that much depth to the story, if you're bringing it back at a time where people have seen so much of what technology can offer in movies, it's such a hard bar to try and compete with. 
I think Tron is a good example of what should have been a standalone film. Yeah, the, um, the think... best thing about Tron Legacy is the uh, the soundtrack. I, I think that I've sort oh, of Daft largely Punk. expunged the uh, the uh, the film from my mind. But yeah, Daft, the Daft Punk soundtrack is actually amazing, and I, I listen to yeah. that quite frequently actually. But the the film itself, I'm I'm less enamoured of. It doesn't. I I you know I, I think there's a lot of fondness for the original, but I don't know anyone who says that they're a fan of Tron Legacy on its own. I'm a fan of Bruce Boxleitner, who went on to be in Babylon 5 and played Tron. Um, one of my favourite uh, interview experiences was at Comic-Con where I was interviewing him. I think it was about Babylon 5, and the interview was kind of wrapping up, but he wanted to carry on, and he was about to go on stage at Comic-Con, and he just said, walk with me. <laughs> it was very West Wing, very cool. Um, I got to walk with Tron. And Ridley Scott is going back to TV for the first time in decades with Raised by Wolves. Now, when I first found out he was making Raised by Wolves, I wondered if it was the Caitlin Moran uh, on Channel 4 that had got a big budget sci-fi <laughs> remake. It turns out it isn't. Um, looks very post-apocalyptic. Looks amazing. Um, uh, does this look like a show you want to watch? It, it does. I don't. It's on HBO Max. I think is where it's going. And I uh, and I, I I don't I don't have that currently. So I need to. You know, it depends where it, where it gets uh, where it gets streamed in the, in the UK. But um, but yeah, I thought the trailer was great. Um, I love that. I think I think um, Ridley Scott has had some misfires in recent years. Uh, I think still gets a lot of, you know, he coasts a lot on, on, on earlier successes and, and loved the earlier films and less, less so things like alien covenant. But I, I saw the, 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 um, uh, the trailer, I thought it looked amazing. What about, what about you folks? I thought it looked brilliant too. Um, and you know, and I, I do, I'm a fan of Ridley Scott. And so everything that comes out, I ha- have that hope that like you say, you know, it maybe it has the magic of the early years, but, um, you know, I think AI can be quite hit and miss when you come to, to, to do film and TV. There's been a lot out there that hasn't quite hit. So I, I have high hopes because when it, it, it does do well, I think it's amazing what, you, what they can do. So I have high hopes for that one. That will be on my watch list. Mulan we've now heard is is now going to come to Disney plus at the same time as it's in cinemas but the big thing about this is you're not going to be able to stream it as part of your Disney plus package 30 extra dollars isn't it too expensive extra dollars I mean crazy I'd like to know who came up with that idea (laughs) what they were on at the time (laughs) sure people are locked down at the moment and you know they can't go to the cinema and maybe maybe they're looking for things to do and you know and 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 the, the Mulan movie I'm sure will be great and is, is hotly anticipated but yeah it just feels I don't I can't imagine any film to, that I'd watch sitting on my sofa that I just couldn't wait a year and see it for, for see it and save myself $30 I, you know I, I think I think I think you know there'll, there'll be a bit of a backlash to that and speaking of backlash uh, there's been another picture released from the adaptation of Terry Pratchett's The Watch um, this is a show that has got fans a little bit uneasy um you know so it's based on the city watch of ank Morpork, um sam grimes who's a wonderful character um but it doesn't look exactly as we expected now dave i know you're a big terry pratchett fan how do you feel about it yeah i mean i i like to give things a, a, a shot and i haven't seen it so so who knows but yeah i i, I love um terry pratchett particularly the um the city watch books and i think um uh the night watch is is you know an absolutely amazing book which um you know i, I think they should teach it in schools i think it's a, i think it's amazing and and the the night and the, the, the watch characters have have become popular favorites amongst all that that um that pratchett created they've taken it in a direction that isn't what ank morpork the, the city and the and the watchers in my mind um I, i'm all for you know for for directors and writers um having their own vision and, and maybe maybe it'll be great um 
but because um, I haven't seen any, you haven't seen any of it, so I, I hesitate to, to, to prejudge. But but it doesn't look right, and I think that's what what got got fans going. I think I think the the it's so kind of steampunky, isn't it? Yeah, it's become very sort of steampunky, and and um and since they're so sort of vivid in in um in the books, and the, you know the books ran for you know for for many many years. Terry Pratchett was prolific, and so there's there's so much of uh, there's so much canon and so much description of, of of that world, which does in fairness evolve over the course of the books, and and they have the clacks, which become you know a little bit like a primitive internet and so on so it does kind of evolve with time but but not the, the way this this is in fact it, you know it, the the scenes we've seen look almost like they could come from one of the superhero shows at the moment like the umbrella academy or something that is kind of slightly hyper real science fictiony type thing and, and that doesn't feel right uh to me to me as a fan with the watch i kind of want to give it the benefit of the doubt because the script might be amazing and it's, it's on bbc america who did the dirk gently series which was very very different to douglas adams books but actually worked really well. So, you know, it, it might be fine. You know, it might be really funny. It might be really clever. It just looks different to how you expect. I mean, I think adapting any much-loved work of fiction for another medium is is kind of fraught, isn't it, with danger? You, you, you're either accused of being too slavish or you're accused of deviating too much or, you you know, you're putting your too much of yourself in it or not, you know, and, and so it's a bit of a thankless task. So I, I don't envy them at all. But, um, uh, yeah, I... Um, well, I'll, I'll probably watch it, um, but I... I if you'd shown me the pictures and not told me what they were, I wouldn't have realized they were from Terry Pratchett's the, the watch. And I think that's what's, that's what's really? telling me about it. And I think that just about wraps us up for today. Um, thank you very much, Lisa Downs. Well, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday, the 27th of August, uh, when we talk about June. Thanks for listening. And yes, Gordon is alive. <laughs> <laughs>